Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Defence gets an updated mission statement and some more money to go with it. Following representations from our persuasive defence secretary, I confirm that we will add a total of £11 billion to our defence budget over the next five years. But after spending billions on Ukraine and the effects of soaring inflation, how much difference will that money make? Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will help us understand that and also explain what that updated mission statement, the refresh of the integrated review, could mean for the forces. We'll take a closer look at the next generation of Royal Navy attack submarines, which will take up more than a quarter of the new cash. It'll have something that the astutes don't have, vertical launch for cruise missiles, probably also uncrewed remote systems that could be launched from the submarine. And just days after the Ministry of Defence started its own TikTok channel, the government cracks down on the Chinese-owned video app. We do have a real risk from location data. Uh, You can start to understand the kind of things that people are doing. The risk, therefore, of having it on your personal phone is not one that we should be encouraging service personnel to take. So, Mike, hello. You promised us a big set of defence announcements for this week, and we got them, haven't we? Yes, we, we knew there'd be three things. The AUKUS deal, the submarine deal, is, is good news, really good news. There's almost no downside to that, and it's very good for BAE systems in Barrow. It's very good for Rolls-Royce uh, in Derby. It's actually quite good for the atomic weapons establishment at Oldermaston, which really needs some good news after years of rundown. So that's all good. But less good are the spending announcements, which we'll I guess we'll talk about later, and the inter- the integrated review refresh inevitably raises more questions than provides answers and we'll just have to wait for the defence white paper which won't now come out until June. So there's a lot to unpack here but also it's important to realise that this is just setting the stage for a rethink on the size and shape of the armed forces. It gives us some idea of the options available to the people currently working on that. This refreshed defence command paper we think will come in about three months time. Well let's start by understanding the money part. Professor Malcolm Chalmers is Deputy Director of the Defence Think Tank RUSI and has years of experience deciphering defence budgets. Uh, Good to speak to you, Professor Chalmers. An extra £11 billion in the next five years sounds like a lot, but put it in context for us, if you will. How big a percentage rise is that in the defence budget? Well, what we have to remember, first of all, is that the cash allocations for the Ministry of Defence in the last spending review have been eroded in in terms of what they can buy uh, by the very high inflation we've had over the last year. So in significant measure, this extra 11 billion, while welcome, is restoring the real spending power of the MOD to where it was when the last uh, integrated review uh, took place. But it's doing a bit more than that because quite a lot of that spending is being devoted to two particular areas. The first one is the submarine and nuclear program, which was already coming under very severe cost pressure, but also it needs extra resource because of the AUKUS commitment. And then the second area in which they've ring-fenced some extra money is uh, re-equipping uh, the armed forces, primarily the army, as a result of the extra 
commitments to Ukraine and the, the transfer, indeed, of, of, of some of our weapon systems to Ukraine. So that's a broad picture. I think one of the more welcome elements of this for me is that they have now made commitments over the next uh, five years rather than just the next two. And that will produce a little bit more certainty and predictability for defence planners, which uh, they feared they would not get. That said, though, we might have a new government within the next five years, mightn't we? I think that's entirely possible. And then, of course, in principle, uh, everything is open. But I think, nevertheless, we'll see what the Labour opposition says about these uh, numbers for the latter years. But I think my expectation is that they are not going to say, no, you can't have that money that's already been allocated. The the debate between the parties, the debate after the election is going to be whether or not to go above those numbers. So does this money mean it's money for kit and none for people then? I think there is some money uh, for what we call resource spending, which is spending on, on people and fuel and, and other non-equipment elements. But the bulk uh, is uh, on capital spending uh, on equipment, yes. And, and as you've already said, uh, nearly half of this money is allocated. Is any of the remaining $6 billion already spoken for or can it be spent on new plans? I think it's, it's not clear from these documents uh, what it's going to be allocated for. I, I suspect that some of it will be to continue uh, the efforts over the next couple of years uh, to, to do more on submarines on the one hand, nuclear uh, stockpiles on the other. But of course, there is a real uncertainty about where the Ukraine war goes. This, to me, feels uh, like we're in, in a... In the 1915 moment, we are at that moment in World War One, where we realise this war could go on for some time, where all the sides are beginning to run out of kit and ammunition and even to some extent people. I mean, that's where we are with Ukraine and Russia now. And in terms of the details of the money, are there any potential hidden traps in there, details which contain the devils? There are always traps. I haven't, I haven't discovered uh, any of them uh, yet. But you're looking. <laughs> the overall position in this allocation, 11 billion sounds quite a lot, but we have a defence budget of 50 billion pounds per year. So 2 billion on top of 50 billion is still a relatively modest amount. So overall, Malcolm, in what state does this leave the defence budget? It's basically provided compensation for the extra inflation that we've had over the last year. So it's more or less even Stevens from where we were at the time of the last integrated review. But of course, since then, we've had the war in Ukraine starting, new challenges with China, the new AUKUS deal. So a lot of, a lot has changed. It feels like this is still very much an interim review. And for big decisions on capabilities and choices, we're going to have to wait until after the election. Malcolm Chalmers, thank you so much. Thank you. Mike, let's home in on Malcolm's point about the relative certainty of the budget for the next five years. As the blueprint for the armed forces, the command paper is updated. Does this budget give us any idea of how big a shape-up this will be when it's announced in June? No, not really. I mean, I think as Malcolm Chalmers says, this is a sort of steady-as-you-go moment as far as spending goes, that the extra spending announced sounds a lot, but it will actually keep 
uh, defence more or less on the keel it's already on. And we know that the army's got real problems in recapitalizing itself properly. I mean, remember that in 2015, the SDSR, the Strategic Defense Review then, said we would field a full combat division capable of going to the continent by 2025. Now, Future Soldier, the army's own Future Soldier strategy, says we'll be capable of sending a full combat division to the continent by 2030. Mm -hmm. So that has already gone back five years. And Patrick mm -hmm. Sanders, the ch chief of the general staff, says we've got to be able to do it now. We've got to mobilize now. And the fact is that the, you know, the army is years away from being able to meet that first basic requirement of NATO leadership, which the document talks about quite assertively, of if we can't field a full combat division, why is anybody taking very, very much notice of us in NATO? And that's a real conundrum. And we say, you know, the document says we'll further strengthen the Estonian battle group. Well, we've just taken half of it away. You know, we actually took, you know, one, yeah. one half of that, brought that back. And there's a document saying we will strengthen it. It's almost like a mixture of George Orwell and, and Terry Pratchett, in a way, you know, that mm -hmm. we say black is white and there's a sort of an element of fantasy in it all. Now, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of you know, score cheap points against the refresh because it is trying to do its best. But the fact is, it leaves us with lots of questions. And it, maybe those questions will be answered when we see the defence white paper, we think in June, as you say, in about three months' time. But my goodness, they'll be difficult to answer. And it's very hard to believe that we can meet the commitments that we're laying out in this refresh without revisiting again how much we're prepared to put into defence or to rework the defence budget really quite radically, to, to take money away from big areas of the defence budget in order to make this the army's requirements a bit more realistic yeah and there's no fanciful thinking from the defense secretary is there no fantasy there because he says he's warned our armed forces have been hollowed out has the mod got the scope to reverse any of that now not on paper not as far as you can see unless we stop doing something really quite important and i do think that we and nobody's going to put this down in on paper but i do think we are moving towards a country that has a maritime strategy we're looking more and more like the britain of the 1880s 1890s that relied on the royal navy and had an army for expeditionary operations around the world because of the the empire and so on and, and, and yet at a time when we say that our fundamental security is back in Europe, it's not clear that our, our increasingly maritime sort of strategy is quite the, the, the appropriate response. And we don't seem to want to face that issue at the moment. I just want to play you a bit from an interview with the Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Tony Radekin. Now, this was the day before the budget, when we only knew part of the extra money or about part of it. But he was asked whether this refresh of the Defence Command paper could mean more cuts. We might decide that we really want to focus on some particular capabilities and inevitably you might pare back in some other areas. But this is about continued investment in UK defence might decide to pair back in some areas. What do you make yeah. of that? Yes, I mean, that's the point. If, if the defence body is not to increase more structurally, and it doesn't look as if it is, then the only way to get this back in balance is to stop doing something else that we're doing quite a lot of. And it's, it's hard to see what that would be. Um, you know, where, where else are you going to take money from? I, I'm, I'm very interested in what Tony Radikin said, and I just wonder what he might have in mind, unless he's just thinking more generally that, uh, you know, defence, we, we still spend quite a lot on defence. We don't get as much forward as some of our allies get for spending less. And maybe we'll start to buy foreign kit instead of commissioning so much of our own kit from our own suppliers. That's one thought. But I, I scratch my head 
to think... You, you know, are sounding we... a bit exasperated, I have to say, I Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, I scratch my head and think, you know, if you had to produce another 10 billion or 15 billion over the next two to three years in order to meet our commitments in Europe in relation to Ukraine, where would you find it? And I'm, I'm struggling, I have to say. Uh, and I said at the start, <clears throat> the refresh of the Integrated Review was an updated mission statement for the armed forces. Has it changed much then? It has a bit, yes. It's a better statement than the original. It's different in tone. It's far less boastful and arrogant than the, the, the 2021 document. We, we've dropped the idea of global Britain. We now talk much more about cooperation and being a realistic partner. And we, we're not talking about being global leaders in this and world class that. I mean, that, that 2021 document was frankly embarrassing. And this version of it, I think, is much better. It's, it's stopped insulting our European partners, which the 2021 document did by omission. And it talks about working with the EU, the PESCO process. And it talks about getting back into proper negotiations and arrangements with our EU partners as well as within NATO. So that tone is different and it's quite realistic. I mean, it talks about Ukraine being a fundamental challenge to our whole collective security design. I mean, that sounds like a statement of the obvious, but actually it's quite important that it, that it is there. So, uh, so I think this review is certainly heading in the right direction. But always with analysts, we say, you know, don't follow the words, follow the money. So best calculated guess, do you think servicemen and women will notice any change for better or for worse as a result of all of this? Best calculated guess is that it will be better for the Navy and possibly for the Air Force, worse for the Army, unless more fundamental change can be baked into the process towards the second half of this year. And that, whether we do that or not, I think will have quite a lot to do with what happens in Ukraine. Well, as we mentioned earlier, three billion pounds of that extra money is going to kickstart the programme for Britain's next generation of conventionally armed nuclear powered submarines. It won't just be the Royal Navy getting these subs. Towards the end of the 2030s, Australia will get them too. This is the next step in the AUKUS Defence Pact, Australia, UK and US. The US contributes the nuclear reactor technology. The UK designs and helps build the Australian submarines. The deal announced on Monday will also mean British and American submarines visiting and eventually operating from Perth on a rotating basis, plus Australian sailors embedding in the Royal Navy's submarine service. So what's in it for us? Nick Giles is Senior Fellow for Naval Forces at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I think it will be a huge fillip to some extent for the uh, industrial base uh, of the UK. Frankly, the UK has been bumping along the bottom of staying in the nuclear submarine building business. This will kind of add economies of scale, but it will also, I think, in the end, deliver benefits in terms of probably a, a better submarine for the Royal Navy with certain uh, US capabilities, probably a bit like the Dreadnought submarine. There'll be a common missile compartment for cruise missiles, some other elements of US technology in, 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 in the submarine systems that will, will, will make it a better submarine for the UK. Uh, what the price tag will be at, at the end of the day, I think, will be a question going forward. Yeah, indeed, an important one as well, because it might look a bit odd to some that we're putting up billions of pounds for attack submarines when the only five of the seven current astute class submarines have launched. Given all the pressures on the defence budget, does this make sense to you? Well, submarines are a long-term business and a long-term commitment. It is now that work needs to be done in order for the next generation of submarines to come along in time for their replacing of the, of the current astute class. Part of this is in the long term, I think, the 
Royal Navy's ambition, certainly, is to build up its submarine numbers again. I, I think there is a sense in which seven was never the right answer as far as the Royal Navy was concerned in terms of, of attack submarines. There was always going to have to be investment in that, and that's what we've seen. AUKUS helps in a way. It'll, it, it'll add in, in the long term, I think, there'll be some Australian investment into the UK industrial base, but it'll also help in terms of you know kind of stabilising the future for the UK's submarine building program and, and provide some economies of scale. But there might have to be some trade-offs as well in terms of being a partner. So what more can you tell us about the design and the expected capability of these new AUKUS submarines? One of the um, relative advantages for the UK in terms of British submarines compared to uh, US submarines was, although they are in, in the round eye-wateringly expensive, but they were relatively inexpensive compared to the American submarines, they had slightly uh, smaller crews, so they were easier to operate in, in terms of that level of resourcing. I think the gap may well narrow going forward because I think the new SSN will be more capable. It'll have something that the Astutes don't have, which is a vertical launch for cruise missiles and potentially also one of the key you know, underwater battle developments going forward, probably also uncrewed, uninhabited remote systems that could be launched from the submarine. And overall, a combination, a bit of a hybrid of best of UK and some US injections of, of, of key capabilities in some areas. So it'll be a, a bigger and more capable submarine. Yeah, and, and Nick, Australia's submarines will be designed in the UK, use American reactor technology and be built in Australia. How big a deal is it or, or isn't it for the UK defence industry? I, I think it is huge in the sense that it provides greater opportunities. It represents a whole set of challenges for all the um, partners in a way, because all of them, UK, Australia and the US, will have to invest more in their industrial base in order to be able to deliver the demands of all three countries. So that will be a major issue going forward. And what is the strategic thinking behind this partnership? Is it just about getting Australia to do more on that side of the world so we can concentrate on our side? For some people, AUKUS is just about technical uh, sharing. Others would say it is more of a kind of strategic binding together this is another layer of commitment, if you like. This is another strand of commitment into the Indo-Pacific tilt. I think it's enormously ambitious. It will you know, potentially deliver a bigger pool of very capable submarines and submarine operators amongst these three partners. But there are considerable risks involved, considerable challenges that all will face in actually delivering on all of this. And there is no doubt that it will represent you know, a huge requirements in terms of investment. And that is going to put pressure on the budgets of uh, all three countries, I think, at the same time as all the other elements of rebuilding and rearming their military capabilities for the future. Nick Charles, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Mike, this AUKUS deal is very much about China and the UK's approach to China does seem to have hardened in this refresh of the integrated review, irrespective of the language used of, as challenge rather than threat these days. Yes, it, it talks about it being an, uh, an epoch-defining uh, challenge and it's much more specific than it's, the previous uh, document was about the, the sort of form that that challenge takes. And it's clear that, that the August deal, which is mentioned quite a lot in this review, they hope it's a tip of an iceberg because if the submarine uh, arrangement is working well, then they hope to build on that 
on hypersonic technologies, hypersonic missile technologies, on uh, quantum computing, which is very uh, important in intelligence work. And of course, you know who that's directed towards. If it goes well, then it will be the building block of a, of a new form of, of military political cooperation between the three allies, three of the five eyes allies in the Pacific. And that is something that the Chinese take very, very seriously. They, they pretend that they don't care, but they care very much. Well, let me just play you a sound from China. It might not conjure up images of Beijing. If it sounds familiar, though, it's because you've probably heard it on many online videos. It is the sound of TikTok. Chinese-owned, used by an estimated 1 billion people and increasingly controversial. The White House and European Commission have banned the TikTok app from their devices, and now the UK is also restricting it from government hardware. The timing looks awkward. In the same month, the Ministry of Defence launched its own TikTok channel. But just a few days later, the security minister, Tom Tugendhat, ordered an investigation into TikTok to make sure our phones aren't carrying spyware. Understanding exactly what the challenges that these apps pose and what they are asking for and how they're reaching into our lives is incredibly important. That's why I've asked the National Cyber Security Centre to look into this. We can talk now to former Army Intelligence Officer Louise Jones, who's now Head of Intelligence at McKenzie Intelligence Services. Lovely to speak to you, Louise. Do you think it's a good or a bad idea for the MOD to be running its own TikTok channel? So on the surface of it, it's actually quite a good idea. So TikTok is used a lot by the very young generation. And this is an audience that the MOD has to reach, right? It's where it's going to recruit the the soldiers and uh, airmen and and Navy personnel of the future. So really, it's quite good that they're establishing a, a presence on the platform and they're tailoring their message to reach that audience. Now, the issue comes where there is concerns over TikTok's data sharing with uh, the Chinese government, Chinese government agencies, uh, amongst others. Now, um, obviously, the way this is going to be run by the MOD, they're they're making sure that it will be run on safe devices. So I don't think there's a a threat to um, the MOD just for simply having the account. Um, But there's certainly questions about, I think, the mixed messaging over TikTok as a platform to use in general, though. And where there are security concerns, what are they exactly and how much of a risk does it pose? So what TikTok will do is it will gain uh, permissions from your phone to access data on your phone, be that uh, location data, so where you are, where you're going, uh, what other apps there are on your phone, um, how, how often you use your phone, what kind of networks you're connecting to. And, you know, this is pretty standard data gathering. A lot of apps on your phone will be doing things like that. Um, But what's not clear is the relationship between where TikTok is sharing the data it collects. And as as I previously mentioned, uh, the data it's sharing with, for example, Chinese national agencies uh, for apps that are run by American companies. It's a lot clearer about what they are and aren't sharing with uh, official organizations, whereas that's not the case with with the Chinese run TikTok. And are you fairly convinced and reassured that what the MOD is doing secures their TikTok accounts? Yeah, so they will have had a risk assessment. They'll be using devices that are very that only be used for the TikTok account. Things will be firewalled. They won't be using personal devices to post or anything like that. So, so the risk in and of itself of having an account, um, it will be very low, negligible. And what about private accounts of service personnel? What's the risk there? 
So I, I think here we do have a real risk, uh, particularly from location data. Uh, you can start to understand the orbit of, of a unit simply by being able to collect location data. Um, you can understand the kind of things that people are doing just by seeing where the location of personnel are going, you know, which training areas they're visiting. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very clear, you know, in many cases from location data, what it is that people do and, and what rank they are and things like that. So the risk, therefore, of having it on your personal phone um, is, is, is not one that we should be encouraging service personnel to take. So do you therefore think that service personnel should not have private TikTok accounts? Yes, correct. Yes. Um, and which, uh, you know, comes with its own disadvantages. As I say, it's a very popular platform, popular amongst young people. It's a way to keep in touch with with friends, which is very, very difficult for a lot of service personnel because they're often posted a long way away from friends. And they're used to interacting with their friends via platforms like TikTok. So, you know, it, it, it is a huge thing to ask people to say, oh, you shouldn't have this, this app on your phone. And I do recognise that. Is there a risk that China will draw up a list of people, though, who are subscribing to an MOD? TikTok channel, would they be interested in that? So um, I think they wouldn't gain any more information from that, from what we can see from people who subscribe on things like Twitter and Instagram already. So I don't think in that respect, it's giving out too much information. Um, and I think what helps on platforms that tend to be more text-based, like Twitter, is that a lot of service personnel are using it anonymously. So it can be quite difficult for them to identify if someone's just following out of interest or it's service personnel. The issue with TikTok is that it gets very personal because you are posting, uh, in many cases, pictures and images of your own face. And it's very mixed messages we're getting as the public, though, isn't it? The MOD want us to watch their TikTok channel. The chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee has recommended that we delete the app to protect our privacy. How problematic is that? Yeah, the government really needs to have a coherent view on this. Um, and it reflects, I think, a, a wider debate about how we interact with China as a whole. There really is a mismatch across government departments where the Ministry of Defence sees China as a, as a competitor, as a systemic challenge, I think is the phrase that's been used. And then you have departments such as uh, those focused on trade, which see China as a, as a potential business opportunity and therefore are trying to encourage closer cooperation with China. So really, the government needs to decide um, a more coherent view across departments. So you don't have one department uh, saying things like Alicia Kearns has said recently about deleting it and then having others who are actively using TikTok as part of their official common strategy. And do you have a private TikTok account? I don't. Um, I uh, have only ever used it on sort of a firewalled phone for, for any kind of um, uh, work purpose purposes, not in my, in my current role, it should be said. Um, and I did used to interact with the platform because uh, I speak Chinese and I used to study in China. So I've interacted in it before its current guys as uh, Douyin. So, uh, but now I don't have it and I wouldn't have it. And what would you say to service personnel who have private TikTok accounts? I would say delete them, delete the app on your phone. Uh, it's just not worth it. Former Army Intelligence Officer Louise Jones. The Ministry of Defence told us it uses a wide range of digital channels, including TikTok, to promote the work of the armed forces and to communicate our support to Ukraine, they say. It also said robust processes are in place to ensure its devices are secure and that its most sensitive information is held on a separate system. Uh, Mike, you're a pretty high profile figure in UK defence. Ministers and prime ministers have drawn on your expertise over the years. I imagine China would quite like to know what's on your computer. 
Uh, well, <clears throat> they might, but you have to assume that uh, they do know what's what's on there. I mean, when I was running Rusi, we were targeted all the time with Chinese cyber attacks and sometimes physical burglaries. Mm. And personally, they followed us around the city a little bit. So you just took that for granted. And whenever we went to China or even anywhere in East Asia, we never took our own phones. We'd just buy a cheap phone and a SIM card, chuck it away before we came back. And you had to assume that in your hotel room, anything that you left in your hotel room would be gone through by the domestic staff who were working for Chinese intelligence where foreigners were staying. So you just assume that China does all of this. I mean, now that I'm not running Rusi and I've just got myself to worry about, I, I try to lead an analog life. So I don't, I don't have, I don't have an electronic version. All of my, all my contacts are on, on, on back in a book. My diary is back a, on a paper diary. I, d I don't sync any of my devices deliberately. I'm trying to lead as analog a life as possible, and I don't use many apps. And partly because I can't, I'm hopeless. And when, when friends say to me, "Haven't you got this app?" or "Haven't you got that app?" I tap the side of my nose and I say, "Oh, security." <laughs> And I can see the look in their face. They can't quite work out whether I am a sort of significant, sensitive individual on security issues or just plain incompetent. Man of mystery, I'd say. Uh, just want to pick up on, you said you were followed around, were you, around the city yourself? Yes, uh, we, we had good relations with the Taiwanese uh, ambassadors in, in London. And, and uh, whenever we went to see them, they'd take us for a meal in a very good Chinese restaurant somewhere in London. And within the Chinese restaurants, there are always agents from the PRC. So the Chinese embassy would know that we had been talking to our friends in the Taiwan representative office. We didn't care. They thought we'd be somehow intimidated by the fact that they knew. I really didn't care. But they went, they went out of their way to tell us that they knew that we'd spoken to them. Other colleagues knew that they were being followed around the city by uh, certain individuals. So, yeah, it used, to, it used to happen. It used to make us laugh. Because the point is that, you know, Rusi has no counter part in China. They, the Chinese never believed that Rusi could be close to government, but genuinely independent and independently funded, because in their mm. country that couldn't possibly exist. And so they just automatically assumed that we were, were some sort of intelligence operation with a sort of 50-50 role, which we weren't at all. And th that lack of understanding of what Rusi really was used to drive their curiosity about us all the time. Michael Clark, always good to speak to you. Thank you. I'll let you get back to your file of facts now. Thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate, you both. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>